This week's reading for the 18th Sunday after Pentecost comes from Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, Were not ten made clean, but the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, folks, may the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. Amen. Less than a week ago, just this past Sunday, a really cool thing happened within my immediate family. Now, this really cool thing that happened is called ordination. My wife, who has been in ministry in various roles, various focal points in what she worked on, but she's been in ministry for more than 21 years now. She was ordained into the office of pastor. Now, what that means is essentially, after finishing seminary and after going through various batches of things that she, she had to do ahead of time, she has now been approved to become a pastor, to enter in the role of pastor, and she was called by a, a close, a, a local congregation, a close congregation to do just that. She was called as their pastor. And so in order to begin that new job, that new role, that new focal point in her ministry work, she had to go through the service of ordination. Now, ordination is a cool thing. It's a cool deal. I went through it here about nine and a half years ago, so I've been through it too. But it's, there's this moment. I mean, usually it's this big, long service. But then there's a moment in which there is a proclamation of something new that is happening. Now, this proclamation is made by an individual known as the bishop. So the bishop's kind of like a step up from the pastors. And we have regions, and the, the bishop oversees the region. So it's kind of like the pastor to the pastors is, is, is sort of a way of thinking about it. But the bishop, one of the things that the bishop is tasked with is ordinations and ordaining new pastors into the office of word and sacrament, a.k.a. ordaining them as pastors. Now, it was so cool to sit there. I had front row seat for this. This was great. To, and to hear this proclamation on behalf of my wife. Now, it's so awesome. It's so cool. To, and, and the way it goes is the bishop, right there in the service, makes this proclamation. Let it be proclaimed, or actually it's acclaimed. Let it be acclaimed that Emily Dalen, that's my wife, is a pastor of word and sacrament. And, and, you know, nine and a half years ago, my name was in there. And every time a pastor is ordained in our tradition, it's the same way. Let it be proclaimed that this person, this individual, is now a pastor. It's really, really awesome. But it sort of raises the question in my head, is the person ordained because the bishop says it? Or does the bishop say it because now the person is ordained? I don't know. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Maybe, maybe it's a tension of one or the other. Is it true because the bishop said it, or does the bishop say it because it's true? I don't know. 
But when I think about this, it also reminds me of a joke that went around amongst me and some of my classmates, a bunch of other guys who were pretty snarky like I can be at times. And when we were all going through our series of ordinations, we kept joking around, now you've got your special Jesus powers. Now let me be clear. There are no actual special Jesus powers. You don't receive, like the heavens don't open up and you're bestowed with like this miraculous ability. That doesn't happen. But one of the things that does occur through the process of ordination is that we as pastors can then participate in another ritual, another situation. This one is actually a legal situation in which two people join themselves into the legal status of married. Marriage, weddings, that's what I'm talking about. And I'm thinking about this because I actually just had one a few weeks ago, and I got another one coming up here in just a couple more weeks. And the same type of situation happens. There's that proclamation. And in this situation, when we're talking about weddings, it happens pretty much right at the end. We've got all the various things that go on. We've got the vows. We've got the giving of the rings. We've got all this different stuff that happens. And then there's the proclamation. When, it, when I say, by the power vested in me, I proclaim that they are married, that these two individuals are now married, Mr. and Mrs. or whatever configuration might be going on. These two people have joined together in marriage. But it's the same type of situation as the ordination. Are they married because... I say so because I proclaim it, or am I proclaiming it because they're married? What is, is it true because I say it, or do I say it because it's true? You know, it's that same tension. And that idea of someone making a proclamation and the tension of is it true because they said it, or do they say it because it's true, that is also present within our scripture lesson. The same type of situation applies. But to really understand where that's at, we got to dig into some context because context is important. When we are talking about the Jesus' day and the Holy Land or Israel or Palestine or whatever we want to call it, all of the geography is important and the culture is important and, and religious aspects, aspects are important. All this stuff ties in. So let's break this down. Jesus is in a portion of Luke's gospel known as the travel narrative. He is heading towards Jerusalem. And he has been heading towards Jerusalem for a long time. It actually starts in like chapter 9, and he'll finally arrive in chapter 19. So we're getting real close to him being there. But this whole time he's been, his face is set towards Jerusalem, and he's going that direction. Now, in what we hear today, it seems like he's actually making some progress geographically. We hear that he's in the region in the midst of Galilee and Samaria. Now, where this is at, if you think about present-day Israel or the Holy Land or whatever you want to call it, Galilee is the region to the north, and then the region immediately to the south of that is known as Samaria, as we hear it today, and then Jerusalem, which is where he's headed, it's farther down to the south. So he's going from the north, and he's heading south. We hear he's in the midst of these two regions, kind of like he's in no man's land. He's in this, this area kind of between the two regions where he could be in one and he could be in the other. He could kind of be in both. Uh, so he's sort of in the mixture type area. And we hear he's walking into a certain village. Doesn't, we don't know what village it is, and it doesn't really matter. All we need to know is he's in this region uh, or this space between these two regions. Now, we also need to keep in mind the importance of these different regions, in particular, Samaria. Now, when we hear Samaria, which is where the Samaritans live, we heard Samar uh, about a Samaritan in this story, more about him in a little bit, and perhaps you've heard of Samaritans in other times before. The Samaritans are the result of a long period of history that dates back almost a 1,000 years before Jesus. 
There used to be this one big kingdom of Israel. And then about 900 years before Jesus was born, that kingdom split into two. There was Judah in the south, which is where Jerusalem is. And then there was Israel in the north, a.k.a. Samaria. Sometimes it's called Israel, sometimes it's called Samaria. A couple hundred years after that, the Assyrian Empire came into the northern kingdom of Samaria, and they took it over, and they hauled a bunch of people off into exile, and then they brought in a bunch of other people from around the empire and settled them there, and then those people that came in started to intermarry with the people who had been left behind, and their descendants became known as Samaritans. So now we have the Jewish people from Judah, and then we have the Samaritans from Samaria or Israel in, in the, the, the farther north, and even though these people are technically like cousins or they're actually related, and in a lot of ways they have a lot of things in common, they did not get along. Because of the intermingling from people of different nationalities, the Jewish people didn't really like the Samaritans. The Samaritans didn't really like the Jewish people. There was a lot of anxiety and animosity and angst between the two. They worshiped the same God, but they worshiped slightly differently and in very different places, and they just did not mix. They did not like each other, and that will come in uh, to be important in a little bit. So just kind of tuck that in the back of your mind. So remember, we've got Jesus in the far north part of Galilee, which tends to be Jewish people too, which is weird because it's way far north, but it, it, at that time, that's the way it goes. And he's heading south, and he's sort of in the borderlands between, and he's about to go into a village, and then he encounters these 10 individuals outside the village, and we hear that they are lepers. Now we've got to break this down. Why is this important and why were they outside? Well, first things first, when you hear leprosy, I want you to take your present day understanding and I want you to kind of throw it out the window. By my understanding, leprosy, the disease, as we know it now, actually didn't even exist yet. But what we hear as leprosy within the scriptures, dating all the way back into the Old Testament, like clear back to the beginning, is just a wide variety of skin ailments. You know, just something going wrong in your skin. Now, oftentimes, it's described as being like white and scaly, which sort of sounds like severe psoriasis, but who knows? But what I need you to know is that leprosy, as we hear it here, is basically a wide variety of skin ailments. Now, here's the thing about skin ailments. Sometimes they heal up on their own, right? Sometimes you just kind of get over it and whatever issue you've got going on kind of goes away. Sometimes it's long-lasting and it just kind of continues to go on and go on and go on. But at the time, dating all the way back to Moses and Leviticus, which is like the third book of the Bible, there was concerns about if a person has an ailment, will it spread to other people? And so if it was determined that you had leprosy, whatever that means, and that was identified by a priest, not a doctor, but a priest, the priest would be like, you have leprosy. For everyone's safety, you are now unclean and you have to leave the camp. You have to leave the community and go be outside. And here was the procedure. After seven days, you had to go back to the priest again. They had to, re they had to look at it again and see, is it improving? Is it healing? Is it going away? If so, there was this ritual that you could go through to be declared clean and then you made a sacrifice, and then you were good to go, and you could rejoin the community. If, however, it's still there, and it's not healing up, or if it's gotten worse and spread, you have to continue to stay outside the camp. This is the situation for these 10 individuals that we hear about. They have leprosy, whatever that is, and so they have quite literally lost their community. They have to stay outside. And not only that, 
in order to make sure that they don't spread this to anybody else. If anyone is coming near to them, they have to cover their lip, their upper lip, so it's kind of like this, almost like they look like, I don't know, uh, like like Dracula or something, and they have to declare, unclean, unclean, leprosy, unclean. And that's why we hear that they are calling out to Jesus from a distance. We have these 10 individuals, and the one thing they've got going for them, the one thing is that misery loves company. And since they're all dealing with leprosy, and they're all unclean, at least they can bunch up together and have a little bit of safety in numbers. So that's why we hear these 10 individuals are together. But they are crying out to Jesus from a long way away. And they call him by name. They know who he is. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. From here, Jesus shifts himself into miraculous healing mode. Now, this is not the first time it happens, and when Jesus heals, he does so in a lot of different ways. Sometimes he simply speaks the word and it happens. Sometimes he just lays a hand on the individual and heals them that way. Sometimes he does some elaborate thing like making mud and smearing on a blind person's eyes and telling them to go wash in a certain pool, and when they do, then they can see. What I'm getting at is that Jesus heals. These miracles happen in a lot of different ways. This one seems really kind of weird. Now, remember, the person who declared them unclean in the first place was the priest, and the person who can declare them as being clean again is also the priest. And so Jesus seemingly just tells them to go do what you're supposed to do. Go show yourself to the priest. And they're all like, okay. And in the going, we hear they are cleansed. Jesus doesn't do it instantly. In fact, it almost seems like it's sort of passive. He just tells them, go on and go. And as they go, they are cleansed. And then we hear about this one guy who realizes he's been healed. Now, there is a distinction there. He sees he has been healed of the ailment, but they're all cleansed. So they have been cleansed of the ailment of which they were also healed from. So maybe this is a very similar connotation. I think it kind of is. But the, so they're on their way. And we hear that nine of them seemingly continue. These nine who we assume to be Jewish individuals, Jewish, Jewish people, continue. They go to the priest. The priest declares them clean because they have been cleansed. The ailment is gone, and they are able to rejoin their community. We assume that's what happens, even though the narration doesn't directly tell us that. But what does happen is this one individual, the one who happens to be a foreigner, the one who happens to be a Samaritan, which means even among these outcasts, even among these marginalized individuals, because he is a Samaritan, he is marginalized among the marginalized. So he is like pushed all the way out. He's lucky they even let him hang around with him, but, but they do. He recognizes that he has been healed of the ailment. And so rather than going on to the priest, who as a Samaritan wouldn't see him anyway, he turns around and he goes back and he praises God and he comes back and he thanks Jesus. Now, Jesus gives a little bit of an oddball comment here. We're not 10 cleansed. We're not 10 healed. Where are the other nine? Well, the other nine stands to reason we're doing what Jesus told, him, told them to do. They went to the priest. But this one, this foreigner who can't go to the priest anyway, he's the one who comes back and shows gratitude. And then he says, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. We have, the action, we have three actions that go on with these 10 individuals, with these, with these 10 and especially with this one. They are cleansed in the going and following Jesus' direction. They are cleansed. They are 
also healed of the ailment which makes them unclean in the first place. And then he tells this last one, your faith has made you well. Now, that's a bad translation. It would be better to say, based on the original language, your faith has saved you. Or we can also say your faith has freed you or your faith has liberated you. Raises the question, liberated from what? What is going on here? And what do we make of this? I believe we find that when we start to unpack what does faith mean in the first place? If faith is the thing that saves or liberates or frees, what is faith? Well, when I talk about faith, I describe it as believing that God is going to do what God says, believing that God is going to make good on the promises that God has made, believing that God is going to somehow take action. And if that's the case, if faith is believing that God will somehow take action, let's think back to how these 10 individuals addressed Jesus in the first place. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They don't ask him for a healing, even though that's what they receive. They don't ask to be made clean, even though that's what they receive. They are simply asking for mercy and having faith that God will do something. That, I believe, is the takeaway that we receive from this. It's not about the miraculous healing, though that's present. And it's not about the ailment going away, though that happens. And it's not about going from unclean to clean, although that happens. God takes action, and they believed it could happen, and that God was willing to do so. I believe that's our final takeaway. Now, here's the thing. Here's the deal, and I want to go back to the idea of is something true because it's proclaimed or is it proclaimed because it's true? The nine went on to the priest, the person who had the authority, who had the ability to look and see that the ailment is gone, and yes, you are now clean. But it raises the question, are they clean because the priest says so? Is it true because the priest says so, or does the priest say so because it's true? And maybe that's a tension that, that I'm getting a little too philosophical on. That's certainly possible. But I'm thinking about that idea of times when someone says something, when someone declares someone, something, and it feels like it's more true because it's been said. The one that comes to mind, of course, is hard diagnosis of disease, of illnesses, especially those that are oftentimes not curable. Now, full disclosure, I have never been in a situation where I was sitting across the table and I heard cancer or I heard something of that nature. But I have had a couple of times when it was a possibility. And I can remember the relief then when further testing showed that it was not true, that it was not actually the situation. But I've had also many conversations with people when they've been in that situation, when they've been in that very thing and they've heard that diagnosis. And there's something about hearing the doctor, the one who knows the one who is qualified to make that call, say it, and in hearing it, it makes it true. But is it true because they have said it, or do they say it because it's true? In all of this, I want to come back to the idea of faith, believing that God will do what God says, what God has promised, that God will take action. The gospel that we profess, the gospel that we say is true, says that God has claimed you as beloved child. And that is a distinction, that is a claim, that is an identity that nothing overcomes, not hardship, not disease, not anything that marginalizes us, nothing overcomes that identity and that proclamation that God has made about you. 
And when we live our lives in a way that reflects that truth, and we recognize that we are all on an equal playing field, that we are all flawed and broken and yet still loved and claimed by God, we will begin to do away with this marginalization that we see in the world. The same marginalization that those 10 individuals had to deal with because of something, an ailment that they were dealing with. The truth that we profess is that God loves you and God has claimed you and nothing will overcome that. Now, I've asked the question several times in these different proclamations, is it true because we proclaim it or do we proclaim it because it's true? Well, in this situation, folks, I believe that the gospel is true and that's why I proclaim it. May you hold on to that and may it give you hope in the midst of whatever you might be dealing with.